Delhi's Karkaduma court rejected the bail plea of activist and former JNU student Umar Khalid on 24th March in connection with the Delhi riots larger conspiracy case and this comes after the court deferred the pronouncement of the order three times consecutively Khalid was arrested in 2020 and slapped with stringent UAPA charges along with 17 others on accusations of masterminding the Delhi riots of 2020 which had left 53 people dead and over 700 injured but only 6 have received bail so far Faizan Khan Safura Zargar Asif Iqbal Tanha Natasha Narwal and Devangana Kalita who had to go up to the Delhi High Court before they were granted any relief but recently Ishrat Jahan managed to get bail from the same sessions court that had denied bail to Umar Khalid while Khalid's lawyer argued that the allegations against him have been made out of thin air what reasons did the court give for dismissing his bail how did Ishrat Jahan get bail but not Umar Khalid we take up these questions with the quince legal editor Vakasha Sachdev You're tuned in to the Big Story, the podcast where we dissect the headline-making news for you. I'm your host, Shorbury. Um, welcome, Vakasha, to this episode of the Big Story podcast. Thanks, Shorbury. It's always a pleasure. So, the two things that we know that were brought up in the bail hearing was firstly that Umar Khalid was a part of the Muslim Students of Jamia and Delhi protest support WhatsApp groups, but he hadn't written. um any provocative messages in either of these groups and the second thing was that he wasn't even present in delhi during the riots so can you take us through some of the reasons uh given by the court for denying his bail right so basically at the end of the day you have to understand for understanding why umar khalid was denied bail you have to understand the delhi police's case about the whole delhi riots right and what they claim umar khalid's role in that is Now, in terms of the Delhi police's whole claim, their whole story, their narrative behind the riots is that you had Umar Khalid, then other people, you know, like Tahir Hussain, and uh, had decided that they needed to do, you know, organize these riots in Delhi as a way of sending a message to the world about the whole CANRC issue, and thereby get the government to back down. Now, to do that, then they claim that Umar then directed two WhatsApp groups to be created right back in December. he had this plan for how oh if you organize a chakka jam in a particular way you can escalate it to a point where it creates a confrontation and creates violence where it becomes uh where it, it leads to a riot like somehow just magically this will happen but you know that's that's their claim uh after having set up those whatsapp groups mm-hmm. so those whatsapp groups are used to coordinate the initial protests at jamia which you might remember where the police ended up committing massive acts of police brutality but here they tried to spin that oh they were trying to commit riots and everything out there mm-hmm. um and then it became that okay afterwards and they also decided to set up further protest sites elsewhere so mm-hmm. this was all that umar khalid started all of this on these by getting these whatsapp groups created and then these whatsapp groups made this decision was made that they will go to all these different protest sites and khalid was in the background constantly involved in this decision making process supposedly where he was giving mm-hmm. instructions to people like sharjeel imam or he was meeting these people at like different at, at different protest events or in meetings at people's houses and giving these instructions for how all of this was to take place so that's sort of mm. the delhi police narrative and umar khalid's role is that to 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 show this they they try to say look first you have the setting up the whatsapp groups then you have these meetings they've got a whole set of specific meetings where they've got protected witnesses who claim that umar khalid said all sorts of things 
I mean, the fact that some of these witnesses are, it's there's a biryani seller who supposedly has been allowed in to listen to in this, this deep conspiracy <laughs> being planned or a tea seller in one case who's also like, where I've, I mean, this is a conspiracy being kept secret from everyone, but in, they're happy to talk in front of these guys very, very comfortably. Uh, then you sort of move, you know, over January and February, these meetings kept happening, it seems, where they were planning mm. this. Uh, he and the other co-accused, you know, the other co-accused in this FIR 59, the conspiracy mm. case. And you then eventually come to a point when, you know, when things are happening, when the riots are happening, he's, there's floodies of calls between Umar Khalid and other people uh, where he's directing the violence to supposedly happen. Hmm. And that's sort of, so this is the role which is ascribed to him. Now, this is done through, as you pointed out, there's the WhatsApp groups. There are, there's this claim that, you know, he may not have been there, but he was directing all of this stuff through phone calls and text messages and things. And then there are these protected witness statements about these meetings which took hmm. place. So that's sort of what is there against him. And this, and now this is the problem because this is the the police's narrative. They're, these are the allegations they're making. And they claim, look, we have this, this, this material to back up these allegations. Mm. Now, at this stage, the court can't go into the, it can't go into those that material in any detail. It can't conduct any assessment of the evidence because this is the stage of bail. Mm. And this is because, to an extent, because of the unfortunate Supreme Court Vatali judgment in 2019, which uh, till then, it wasn't clear, right? Because the point at this stage is when you're looking at bail under the UAP is that the court has to say, okay, is there is the police case against the person prima facie hmm. true? Are there reasonable grounds to believe that the police narrative against this person is prima facie hmm. true? So you had high courts, for instance, the Delhi High Court passed in the original Vatali judgment, passed a great judgment saying, look, yes, we're supposed to look at allegations. We're not supposed to delve into evidence per se, right? But given that you're looking at a UAPA thing here, you've got this bar against giving bail. You've got these massive allegations being made. You know, there has to be, we have to even look at some of the evidence to see that it all kind of adds up. But then the Supreme Court got very panicked and and overturned that in, uh, on appeal. And that's why you now have this thing where they say, oh, just look at the totality of circumstances. Look at what the material, just look at what the allegations are, Mm -hmm. which the police or the NIA or whoever the investigating agency is making. And on that basis, see if the case is prima facie true. So that's what the court here has done. They've said, look, this is what the police say. They say they have, look, they're saying they've got all these witnesses. They're saying they've got all of this. So if we look at what the narrative which comes out of that is that there was this big plan being done to cause a riot. And because there was a big plan being there to cause a riot, therefore, there's a terrorist offense. Therefore, UAP applies. uh, Therefore, can't give this guy bail. Hmm. Okay, That's that's the way you sum it up in a nutshell as to why the court has refused bail. Hmm. So, uh, can you tell us what worked differently for Ishrat Jahan who recently secured a bail from the same Sessions Court while Umar Khalid couldn't? Well, so it's not just uh, Umar, right? Like as in a bunch of other people in the last few days you might have seen also Gulfisha Fatima was denied bail. Right. Uh, Tasleem Ahmed was denied bail. Uh, I mean, we're pretty much, I'm pretty sure we're going to see Sharjee Ramam also being denied bail to, uh, I think when the hmm. order comes out tomorrow. Khalid Sefi will also probably be denied bail. The thing is, because, as we said, look, it, what the courts can do is the courts can't go into the evidence, but they can look at what are the allegations being made against these people in as part of the police narrative, right? As in, what is it that's being claimed against them? Now, when it came to Ishrat Jahan, the allegations, the specific allegations against her were very weak. Uh, there was, because at the end of the day, she was part of a protest site, which was not in Northeast Delhi. So it couldn't be said that she had set off the riots in Northeast Delhi. And mm. there was no, there was nothing that, oh, in this group, she said this or she did that or that she was even, or that she, you know, there was no, there was nothing about her playing any role in the grander plan here, which supposedly led to the riots. Okay. Mm. Whereas mm. now, 
at the, now you could say, but well, I mean, she didn't send any incriminating messages on those groups. She was actually not even part of most of those groups, uh, those WhatsApp groups, by the way, or any of these groups, these organizations, they claim. And, you know, but you could say that, but Umar didn't send any incriminatory messages, but the police say it, the whole thing was set up at his behest, right? These groups are also at his behest. So therefore, everything which is done in the group is pursuant to his larger conspiracy. So essentially came down to the nature of the allegations against the accused, where it's a, where mm-hmm. the nature of the allegations doesn't provide anything which specifically ties them to this conspiracy or ties them to this grand plan to cause the riots, then they can get bail, like Ishrat. But when the allegations, and again, remember, this is not that the evidence has to necessarily accurately prove this. It's just that the allegations mm. which are there make this out. And it's unfortunate, obviously, that we don't look at the evidence because the evidence, I mean, for instance, over the course of these very, very long bail hearings for Umar Khalid, we've heard all the problems with the evidence which the police are submitting. There's multiple issues with they're saying, oh, this witness said this and this witness said that. And yet you'll see mm. contradictions between the initial statement by given by the witness and then the statement recorded before the magistrate. In one case, there's, there's contradictions between different witnesses. In one case, the witness says something far more serious in his initial statement. Mm. But when he has to actually give a, a statement under oath to a magistrate, he walks back half of it. Despite all of that, the police are pushing that narrative saying, no, 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 this all shows that Umar Khalid was involved. But in any case, the main point is that the totality of things at the end of the day, regardless of whether the evidence is, is, is going to be admissible, whether the evidence is persuasive, none of that really matters at this stage. At this stage, the, the mm. problem is everything seen, the, the things which the police are bringing forward, they claim shows that Umar Khalid was involved in this stuff from the start. And therefore, the court has had to deny him bail. Right. On that note, the Quince correspondent Fatima Khan recently interviewed Ishra Jahan after she was let out. And this is what she had to say about her legal battle. Uh, Fatima, I was listening to the hearings for my bail. I had to keep a lot of patience there. Every 15 days, every month, I gave a letter. I was in the court for hours and hours. I would say that it was a very delayed process. लेकिन फाइनली 24 दिसंबर को मेरा आर्गुमेंट कंक्लूड हुआ और ऑर्डर रिजर्व के लिए रखा गया और लगभग लगभग ढाई महीने बाद मुझे जमानत मिली है तो पेशेंस बहुत रखा लेकिन मुझे बहुत ज़्यादा खुशी हुई मेरे लिए बहुत अनबिलीवेबल मोमेंट था खासकर कि मेरी सेशन कोर्ट से बेल होना तो मैं जबकि ये होप छोड़े बैठी थी मुझे लगता था कि हमें भी हाई कोर्ट मूव करना पड़ेगा जिस तरीके से मुझे मिसक्राफ्ट किया गया जिस तरीके से दिखाया गया कि मैंने बहुत कुछ किया है टेररिज्म लॉ इतना आसान नहीं था तो मेरे लिए बहुत अनबिलीवेबल था लेकिन खुशी इस बात की थी कि फाइनली मतलब मुझे जीत हासिल हुई है और वो भी मैं अगर कहना चाहूँ कि यूएपीए में क्योंकि ये एक ऐसी दुधारी तलवार है जो बाहर आपके घर वालों को और अंदर आपको बहुत तंग करती है और मैं इसी के साथ कहना चाहूँगी जब मुझे बेल ऑर्डर का पता लगा कि मुझे बेल मिल गई है तो वहाँ मुझे यकीन हुआ कि कानून अंधा हो सकता है लेकिन इंसाफ कभी अंधा नहीं होता तो फुल इंटरव्यू विल बी आउट सून सो वॉच आउट बट गोइंग बैक टू वकाशा अगेन वकाशा ऑल दो द प्राइमरी चार्जशीट वॉज फाइल्ड अर्लियर इन ट्वेंटी ट्वेंटी द ट्रायल हैजन बिगन यट राइट एंड द केस असाइड लेट्स टॉक अबाउट ह्यूमन राइट्स फॉर अ सेकेंड Umar Khalid is not a convict he's a pre-trial prisoner yeah so why is he being denied bail repeatedly is it fair to say at this point that with UAP it's not the charges but the process which is a punishment 
It is. And I mean, so the, the first thing to remember is that the whole criminal justice system suffers from this, right? So whether you're dealing with UAPA cases or IPC cases, that we ha- India has a massive, massive problem with under trial detention. At this point, it's what, 70% plus of our prisoners, of inmates in jails are under trials. They're not people who've been convicted of crimes. Mm. They're people who are under trials. That's that's a huge, huge problem. So already, just without even picking up the UAPA angle, we already have a major problem with people either not being denied bail or where maybe there are reasons to not deny them bail, but then the trial is taking years and years and years to happen. Um, so in general, we already have a major human rights crisis when it comes to under trials and the way they're being kept. With the UAPA, this becomes massively compounded because of Section 43D5, the thing which says that, right, that the courts cannot give bail if there are reasonable grounds to believe the police case is prima facie true, which is, and and the thing is, this is a huge problem because it means that it's virtually impossible as because the police could make up any sort of tall claims, right? Like they have to just make sure that their allegations, the specific allegations against each person amount to a terror offense. Once you do that, it doesn't matter how crappy the evidence is or how flimsy the evidence is. You can you can coast till it comes to trial. And since that can take years and years in any case, and these cases, again, look at how many, there are so many UAPA cases dealing with, with you know, Nux, with the Naxal movement and people accused of that. They spend four, five, six years in jail. Most of them get acquitted by the end. Uh, but, you know, the damage is done by then, right? And, the and then is, there's the case of Stan Swami. And then there's the case of Stan Swami. You're kept in jail like that and... And this is the problem, right? Because what you're doing is, yes, even though we are still like everyone keeps seem, sim seems to forget that the rule is bail, not jail. The rule is supposed to be that you get bail and jail is supposed to be the exception. So there have to be good reasons to say that. But, you know, in this thing to make sure, I think, you know, that there, there are two sides to it. One is that in the thing to make sure that, that a person can't get out just in general. There's this whole obsession with with making bail tougher for these kind of offenses. Hmm. And part of me also thinks sometimes that it's also about, you know, you know you have a weak case, hmm. right? Like at the end of the day, again, you look at some of the, like the, this bail order for Omar Khalid hmm. recreates like the, all the allegations in great detail. And it is hmm. laughable. Like parts of it are just laughable the way they talk about it, right? About the way this conspiracy is supposed to have been planned and then the way it's supposed to have been executed. It's almost like these guys know this is going to fail at trial. So, which is why they're pushing, they're, they're contesting this bail, just mm. the bail hearings to such an extent. Umar Khalid's bail hearings have gone on for eight months. That's the only time a trial should take. <laughs> you know, it's it's nonsensical, the number of <laughs> hearings. It's kept, keep, it kept on getting deferred. It kept going on longer and longer and longer. The arguments in this case went on for far too long and were stretched for far too long, even by the prosecution. You know, it wasn't just that the accused spoke for very long, even the prosecution argued for ages, mm. making kind of nonsensical things and the court kept taking adjournments so the problem is that yeah you we you know it's like you have a huge problem with under trial detentions already the uapa gives you a tool to make it even worse and then instead of thinking about about this the courts are also you know they, they're not they're not taking factoring that into account at all and they're just therefore allowing people to be stuck in pre-trial detentions or stuck in jail without being convicted of anything for years and the worst part will be, you know, by the end of this, thing, if we, most of these people are going to get acquitted. Let's be clear here. I think mm-hmm. that's pretty obvious at this stage. If you look at so many UAPA cases of the years at the end of the day, most of them, like 70% of UAPA cases over the mm-hmm. years, if we look at the stats, all end in uh, acquittals. And I think that number is, in fact, even increased in the last few years. So what you're looking then at is a situation where 
these people are likely to be acquitted at the end. Like the Bhima Kohling accused, around three or four of them have been accused already previously in UAPA cases, spent four or five years in jail. People like Vernon Gonzalez, Arun Ferreira, and then been acquitted. But the point is, you've kept them off the streets. You've not allowed them to be part of a movement. You've kept them away from the mm. people who need their help. So... Since you mention all this, you know, we've seen a lot of instances of hate speeches, of openly instigating speeches. Yet a lot of people who are at the center of all these um, incidents are either out on bail or haven't been arrested yet, yeah. um, despite of solid vi- uh, video evidence. But a lot of others are being charged with UAP on the basis of what is widely believed to be flimsy evidence. So is the UAP becoming a weapon to shut down dissent? No, absolutely it is, because that is exactly what you're seeing. As you pointed out, right, like people who are doing, who are in, engaging in majoritarian hate speech um, are getting away with it. And the, and the thing is, it's not that, you know, the UAPA is filed against them and they get bail. The UAPA isn't even put on the FIR, you know, even though you've got these people making these mm. these these blatant claims, which clearly amount to terrorism. If you're saying that you want to kill off an entire section of the population, that is, I mean, that's genocide, let alone terrorism, right? And that doesn't get the most serious provisions. You'll just put a random 153 or 295A from the IPC where the maximum punishment is three years. So a person is entitled to bail under the Arnesh Kumar guidelines. Here, you know you have nothing really against these people. So what do you do? You just say, oh, yeah, UAPA, UAPA. And then throw them in jail for, for, for years before, they, before you, you know, when you're never really going to convict them. It is very much a tool, I think, of using it to, to combat dissent. Uh, because, I mean, you, I mean, look, let's be clear. There will be some cases, sure, where there'll be an actual terrorist attack and it'll be used and that's fine. But at the end of the day, the problem is the UAP has to, is being enforced, is being, like all laws at the end of the day, it's being enforced by political governments, by governments which have their own agendas. And that's sort mm. of, and they've, though these, the, the governments mm. of today have now realized that this is a brilliant tool to, to quash dissent because you, because you know, in these cases, you mm. don't have a strong case, which is going to win at trial. But you can put these people away for years without it. So, you know what, why even bother trying to do a good job of your investigation or anything uh, for the trial when all you need to do is just throw enough stuff at the wall here. Some of it, enough will stick that you can keep the person in jail under UAP and that's it. I mean, and, and the thing is, it's as long as the courts are not willing to take a stand against this, this will keep going on. The courts have failed to build those safeguards in. Uh, the high courts tried, and especially that Delhi High Court Watali judgment really tried to do that. And yet it was the Supreme Court which took away the safeguards. It took away mm. the, the, the a judgment which would have made it, which would have made the police or the investigating agencies think twice before coming up with a random case. Because remember, right, when you're dealing with dissenters, you, I mean, just, you know, in good faith, you will not have a good case, right? You're going to be making up a lot of stuff. It's going to be quite weak. So having giving the courts the ability to apply a sufficient degree of scrutiny is what should be done in these kind of cases. But because of the Supreme Court judgment, that becomes a lot tougher. It doesn't make it impossible, by the way, for the courts to, you know, give it, you know, look at these allegations of the fine tooth comb. The Delhi High Court did a very good job of that when it was dealing with Natasha Narwal, Devangna Kalita and uh, Asifik Paltana's um, bail request. Because there what the court did was while it didn't pass a comment on the broader conspiracy as a whole, because mm. it couldn't, it restricted to what was being said about those three uh, people in each of the orders for them. But it did kind of look into saying, okay, what is a terrorist offense supposed to be, right? It shouldn't be that the police just say, oh, this person said something mean about the government. It's a terrorist offense. That can't be, right? You have to really look at what is the nature of a terrorist offense. And, and the court, in fact, pointed out that, that even if you have a protest which can get violent, which may lead to unintended or even intended violent consequences, 
that may give you cause for many criminal uh, action, criminal law offenses to be mm-hmm. attracted. But is it terrorism? Because remember, terrorism means it has to be something striking at the heart of your country. It is striking at the integrity of your country, at the unity of your country, at the security apparatus. A protest which may get a bit, which may get violent, which may go out of hand, cannot is not going to automatically meet that standard, right? Like it's and and but what the police have done here is they've basically assumed that any plan to organize a large scale protest, organize a chakka jam. Ha- has to be viewed as a terrorist act because it's being used to bring Delhi to a standstill again. That is not a terrorist act. And to that extent, the Delhi High Court tried to bring a bit more scrutiny to this kind of process, even without looking at the evidence, right, mm-hmm. which they were barred from doing thanks to Watali. But again, the Supreme Court there said that, that, ju- that those judgments uh, cannot be treated as precedent for anyone else going forward. So we are repeatedly seeing the Supreme Court actually make it easier and easier for the governments of the day to use the UAP as a tool to quash dissent instead of making Mm. it tougher, instead of making, adding more checks and balances, adding more scrutiny, because you're looking at a legislation which is so draconian, it is something which allows you to keep people in jail without a conviction. You need to have more safeguards. And yet the judiciary whose job that is Mm. supposed to be isn't doing it. So you're left with a, Mm. a judge like Abhita Brawat is a Sessions Court judge. He can't rewrite the law on this. Could he have been bolder? Could he have said, you know what, this doesn't seem to meet the definition of a terrorist offense? He could have. But that's a really big call to expect a Sessions judge, you know, to make. Where It's, it's the High Court, the Supreme Court, which have to take the lead in stopping this. But, if, you know, I mean, the problem is, of course, that the High Courts, when they try it also, are still then finding their hands being tied by the Supreme Court. So where it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a really messed up problem, I think, which we have right now with this law. Uh, because the ones who should be trying to stop it from being misused are not doing their job. Right. Um, And I think we're going to wrap up this episode here. So I thank you, Vakasha, for joining me in this podcast today. Uh, I mean, always a pleasure, as I said, but I mean, obviously, (laughs) the subject matter, not really a pleasure. (laughs) But (laughs) what do you do? All right. Um, So you can check out our detailed coverage on the investigations on the Delhi riots case on the Quint website and hope you have a great weekend ahead. If you like listening to this episode, please subscribe to the Big Story playlist for episodic updates. We'll have on Apple, Google Podcast, Spotify, GeoSavan, and most of the other popular podcast streaming platforms. For other podcasts, please log on to the Quinn website and check out the podcast section. For any feedback, shoot an email to podcasts at thequinn.com. Thanks for listening. Log on to the Quint's website and check out our other podcasts. 